Well, I realize that was a bit of a serious prayer, but it's good to lift up all uh, needs that we have in prayer. So I want to welcome you in the name of Christ. If you are new here especially, I want to welcome you. My name is Joseph Bianco, Assistant Pastor at City Reformed. Um, if you are new, that there's a way that you can connect with us uh, more formally, which is you can fill out a visitor's card in the back, and you can place that in the offering box. There are also prayer requests there. So if you have a prayer request, um, you can put it there. You can specify if you're, we pray for those things during our prayer on Wednesday morning. But if, if it's a private prayer request, you can specify that, and we can just have a pastor pray for it as well. So we've been preaching through the uh, epistle of 1 Peter. And this has been a sermon series on 1 Peter. Uh, Peter writing to Christian exiles. That is not particularly exiles physically, but most likely spiritually uh, exiled. Um, and we're going to continue in that series today in 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 13. You can read it in your bulletin on page 6. And our response will be, thanks be to God. So hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time, throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father God, now we ask that you, Father, would enlighten our hearts and our minds to be receptive to this word that we just read. Father, this is your word. This is your holy, inerrant, inspired, infallible word. It will accomplish what you promise. So, Father, I pray that we would see your word go out now with great power. Lord, use even my mistakes, my faults, even my sin, Father, to your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as I um, reflected on this text, I realized that the thrust of this text is really getting at our motivations for obedience, our motivations for obedience and holiness. And it hit me that in general, I see people motivated, and these are my categories, uh, I see them motivated by two different kinds of motivations for obedience or holiness. And I want you to think which category you might fit in best. So the two categories are people I see being motivated by either insecurity or pride. Insecurity or pride. So personally, I tend towards the category of pride for my motivations for obedience. I'm motivated 
to actions primarily because of what the actions say about me as a person. It's really hard for me, I'm just sharing this with you, it's hard for me to fail. And I don't mean at a game, I can fail at a game quite well, but I mean in life. It's hard for me to make a really bad decision because for me it feels like I become that bad decision. Conversely, if I make a good decision or if I do a good deed, it can make me feel like I am that good deed or I am that good decision. So I want you to think, is this the category you're in? Is your motivation for obedience your pride? And the second category uh, of motivations is to do, um, for doing good actions is insecurity. Uh, and this isn't me as much, but I see it all the time, and it can be me at times. Someone is fearful of what people think about them, the opinions of others, and they operate out of that sense of insecurity. Sometimes we call these people uh, people pleasers. It's the common word we use. Um, they think things like, <clears throat> if I don't do exactly uh, what's expected of me, then, then someone's going to be mad at me. Or maybe they think, I have to do what she wants, or she's going to be disappointed. But I want you to see the point in both of these categories, that whether it's pride or insecurity, these are really two sides of the same coin. They're, they're not actually that different. They're both wrong motivations for obedient action. What I want to argue today is the third way and I believe it's the way that Peter gives in this text. And it's not the way of insecurity or the way of pride, but motivation to obedience because of love. Motivation to obedience because of love. Motivation to holiness and obedience because of love, which Peter encapsulates in the ransom of Christ in our text. Peter calls these first century Christians exiles to holiness and obedience because they were ransomed. He knows obedience and holiness while suffering is hard, and so he points them to, he reminds them who they are. The text says obedient children, ransomed by the blood of Christ. So we're going to look at this passage in, in three parts uh, this evening. First, we're going to look at holiness, second, and at obedience, and then third, how the two meet in the ransom of Jesus Holiness, obedience, and connecting the two in the ransom of Jesus. So first on holiness. So let me begin by saying that modern day uh, understanding of holiness is really nothing like the biblical understanding of holiness. Modern day holiness is stuffy. That's the modern day understanding of a holy person. In fact, most of the time, modern people use a phrase when they talk about holiness. They say, stop being so holier than thou, Joseph. Modern society just, just doesn't just view holiness as stuffy, but as negative, as somehow disingenuine. Like, me choosing to do the right thing somehow makes me a better person than you. So I remember I was, uh, I was at a bar a couple of years ago in Lawrenceville, uh, shooting pools with one of, some of the locals there, and the bar is called Take a Break in Lawrenceville, and if you've been there, this is the epitome of a dive bar. Um, so anyway, I'm shooting pool with their league, and I'm playing this guy in their league, and I asked him, and I'm losing to this guy, 
And I asked him, I said, what do, you, what do you do for a living? And he said, I'm an electrician. What do you do? And it's always awkward. <laughs> I set myself up for it. It's always awkward when I say, well, I'm, I'm a pastor. And he does a more awkward thing. He looks at me and he makes a bowing motion. <laughs> and he says, oh, I see, Father. <laughs> now, I did not say this to him, but I'm going to say it to you. I was thinking, look, okay, let's get this straight. <laughs> Um, I am not a father. I am a, I am a father of a child, but I am not a father in the sense of a priest. I am a uh, Reformed pastor. And uh, second, Reformed Presbyterians do not believe that anyone is somehow more holy than someone else because of their job. So do not bow to me. <laughs> so if our jobs don't make us holier than someone else, what does make us holy? So primarily, initially, holiness is not something earned, but it's a position given to us based on a relationship. That means if your faith is in Jesus, you are holy. That's what you are. Not because of what you do, but because Jesus is holy. God sets his people apart, and he calls them holy. This is why it bothers me so much when people treat me differently because I'm a pastor. If you believe in Jesus and, and I believe in Jesus, then we are both set apart for God's purposes. Made holy because of the cross, not what we do, not our jobs. That's what holiness is. It's to be set apart. And not just set apart, but set apart for a purpose. Not just initial, but progressive. For instance, I want you to say that I'm building a table, right? And I need to go to the store to get some, some bolts, to bolt the table together. So I go to the store and I purchase these bolts. Well, I don't just go to the store and I don't buy all the bolts, right? I buy the bolts I need. I buy four bolts to bolt the four legs of my table. To be holy is to be set apart for a purpose. Now, look, to help us understand, I need to separate holiness into kind of two categories. We have our holiness as a status, call this initial holiness. That's what you are, that's who you are in Christ. And then we have what we do in that holiness, holy action, or progressive sanctification, progressive holiness. So I want to continue with the analogy. I've set the lag bolts apart to bolt the table. They're holy, but they actually need to do something. They need to perform their function. They need to get bolted into the table or they're useless. They're not doing what they were set apart to do. This is what Peter is pushing in this text. Not just our status as holy, but what it looks like to live out that, those lives of holiness. So verse 13, holiness requires action. And particularly, he gives two actions. He says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. And preparing your minds for action is literally in the Greek translated, you might have this as a subtext if you're reading a, an English Bible, it says, girding up the loins of your mind, is the literal translation from the Greek. You see, back in the day, in the ancient Greek day, they wore tunics. And a tunic is like a frumpy dress, is the best way to describe it. And if you're a woman, so I have been told, it is difficult to run in a dress because your legs are, are bound um, together. So what they would do is they would literally take the tunic and they would tie it. They would wrap it around their thigh and tie it under their legs 
And they would gird up their loins so they could run and they could work. And Peter says holiness requires being prepared to act. A preparation to act, mentally prepared. Same thing with being sober-minded. In his next statement, sober-minded means you are thinking clearly. Have you mentally prepared to be put into use for God's purposes? So I lead the men's new hope for men struggling with sexual sin. And I tell them all the time, I say, look guys, you will achieve sobriety to the degree you are willing to put in hard work. And it's true, some guys do the work and some don't, but growing in holiness requires a preparation to say, this is the work before me, and I'm willing to step into it. So how about you? Have you prepared your minds for what God has required of you to do? And that work you think you need, and the work that God knows you need, do you realize they're going to be different? That what you have prepared and what God has prepared for you will be different. To further the illustration, are you a lag bolt that is just sitting there? Or are you a lag bolt that is saying, wherever you put me, I'm willing to be put to use. So I want to flesh this out. Do we prepare our minds for action? Certainly at the very least, by spending time in the Word of God? Do we dwell on His Word? Do we come to Him in prayer? Do we get clarity? Do we become sober-minded as we align our wills with Him in times of devotion and prayer and fellowship? Are you prepared that God may ask you more than you think you can handle to grow in holiness, to refine your faith? Now, if you're prepared, if you're here saying, you know what, I think I, ha- I have been prepared to be used by God, the next question is, are you willing? And if you're willing, will you go? And that's the step that is often the hardest. Now I want you to look at the text. It's not just living out our purpose, but holiness is also what we refrain from doing. So you could say there's an active and a passive aspect to our holiness. Verse 14 Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So it's not just what we do, it's what we don't do that is holy living. Holiness and living in a holy way and acting in a way means that you're going to act in a way that the world does not act. It's going to look different than those around you. People ought to look at Christians and be curious and say, hey, why did he forgive me? Or... Why won't he drink more with me? Or watch this video with me? Or why is he so gracious even when I hurt him? Holy living is living in a way that resembles the way our Father lives. Holy living is living in a way that resembles the way our Father lives. So when people ask us those questions, why are you so gracious with me or your children Why are you so kind? Why did you forgive me? We say it is not because of us. We say it's because our Father first forgave me. It's because my Father first showed me kindness. It's because I learned grace from Him. So holiness is our status, but it requires our action. 
Now, you can tell already that uh, in the action is a question that I know all of you are thinking right now, which is this. What if I disobey? What if I fall short? Obedience and holiness are tied together, and they're tied together for Peter too. And I'm going to look now at what about obedience and how do they relate. So the first thing you need to hear about obedience, this is my second point, is the end of verse 13. It says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter calls the Christians to action, to obedience, but it's an obedience set on the foundation of grace. It's an obedience set on the foundation of grace. And that is the only way whereby obedience is possible. If you know and you understand and you believe in the grace of God. Second, obedience is always in the category of the father-child relationship. I want you to look at verse 14. It says, It's obedient children, not obedient dogs, not obedient slaves, not obedient strangers. This is obedient children. We can only obey if we have a relationship with the person who requires the obedience. My two-year-old son listens to me sometimes because I am his father. He knows me. Look, if I'm walking down the street and some stranger says to me, give me all your money. Most likely, not only will I not give them my money, but I will think I would, was being robbed by that person. But if I walk down the street and my, I see my father and he says, give me your money, then I will assume there's a good reason why he's asking for my money. And I know that I can listen to what he's saying. In contrast, if you don't know yourself as a child of God, you cannot obey God. Why would you? I see this all the time. People who think that they have a good relationship with God, but they don't know Him. They don't know Him as their Father, as their Savior. Thinking that they're obedient without the relationship. And the answer is, why would you? Why would you be obedient to someone who you do not know? Third, Fatherly obedience will tempt you to take advantage of your position as his child. It will tempt you to take advantage of your position as his child. Look at verse 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. What does this mean? It means that even though he is your father, and he gives you grace, grace upon grace, you still owe him proper fear and reverence. I want you to think about it this way. If you've ever met a good father, okay, a good father, I recognize that many of you may have had bad fathers, but if you've even met a good father, a good father has this weightiness about him. And you see it in the way he acts, in the way he talks, in the way that his children speak about him. They respect his opinion. They have a, a proper fear for his role as their father, as the head of the family. Now, a proper fear. I recognize many of you had had fathers rule you with improper fear. So why is Peter exhorting the exiles to have this proper fear of the father? It is because it is a real temptation to step on the face of Jesus. 
to take his love for granted. I know this is true of all Christians, and I can struggle here as well. I want you to say I'm struggling. Say I'm going through a trial. I'm a Christian. I'm I'm an exile in this world, and, and things are hard. And I know God will forgive me, so I find comfort in my sin. Rather than in Christ. And by sinning, I step on the face of Christ. It's especially hard in exile. It's hard to be obedient when we're suffering. When the world says it's okay to do it. It's okay to step on the face of Christ. How about in your life? Where in your life are you disobedient? Precisely because you presume upon the grace of God. Where do you see God as Father and forget that He is also judge? That He deserves our reverence and our fear? I mentioned the men's sexual addiction group earlier, and I think that for many Christians, this is the area in their life where they forget the proper fear of the Lord. Life's hard. You're going through a trial. You're in an exile, and so you go and you find comfort online in a fantasy, in a dream. You go to a particular site to escape the exile. Maybe it's it's not even a, a, a sexual sin. Maybe it's just the escapism of Facebook or a particular website for comfort. That's why Peter says, verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Because he knows how hard it is in the suffering, in the trial, to remain obedient. It's easy to be obedient when life is going well. But when life is hard, even then we are called to obedience. Now, obedience is not just remaining faithful to our Father in times of exile, but it's also using the opportunities He gives us to abide in Him. Obedience is prioritizing the things that our Father prioritizes. When you look in verse 15, it says to be holy in all of our conduct. This means that there is not one part of your life that God does not call you to live for Him. All of your conduct means, in the Greek, all of your conduct. So just real quickly, do your priorities line up with God's priorities? Do you take advantage of opportunities He gives you for obedience? For example, uh, we think of community groups, right? Is community group primarily a place for you uh, to hang out? Or is community group a place where you are desperately seeking to grow in the goodness in the knowledge of God. Certainly it's a place to have fun, but is it just that? How about church attendance? Do you, I mean, I gotta say on a a Super Bowl night, you guys probably got this one down, but uh, do you view church attendance as optional? Or do you see it, yes, primarily as worship, but certainly also a place where we can learn and grow in obedience to Jesus? How about service to others? Is service to others just a checklist for you to to make yourself feel good before God? Or is it a place where we can learn and grow in the love of God and the obedience of Jesus Christ? I'm going to push it a bit further. Maybe you say, yes, I serve, I attend, I do all these things fine, but how about this? Is there a place in your heart that you withhold from God? Is there one place in your heart that you withhold from God? Do you say to God, you can have all of these parts, but you cannot have this one. Not this part of my life, 
But Peter says, all of you, all of your conduct. Now, if you've been paying attention, you should feel a weightiness right now in this part of the sermon. A weightiness that recognizes our failure to feel, to know, to love holiness, to actually be used for God's purposes. And my third point, I want to relieve this tension and give you the motivation for the obedience for holiness and obedient living. This is my third point. So how does holiness and obedience connect? Well, it connects with the cross. So I want to begin by pointing out uh, what at first glance seems to be a discrepancy in the text. Verse 17, Peter says, you are judged according to your deeds. Right? But then he goes on to say, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So wait a second. How are we judged by our deeds if Christ, if Christ is ransomed to cover our misdeeds? How does that work out, Peter? How are we judged by our deeds if Christ is ransomed to cover our misdeeds, our sins? And that's exactly the point that Peter's getting at here in this text That you see God's holiness. You see his perfection. It's so great. It's so awesome. He is so perfect that you and I cannot be called his children unless we are changed. And not just changed a little bit, but changed radically. And the way he radically changes us is that he puts us in the category that he's in. The category of holiness. And he does it by ransoming us. So what is a ransom? A ransom is a payment for release from capture. A payment made for release from capture. And in this case, who is captured? Everyone. Everyone. Verse 18 says, You inherited the way of your forefather. We are born in captivity. We are slaves to sin. But God does not want you as slaves. He wants you as sons. He wants you as daughters. So Jesus makes a payment for you. He pays to God what you owe for your sin. He ransoms you. And in the process of that ransom, he sets you apart. And he calls you holy. Not because of you. You didn't do anything. You didn't earn it, but he does it by grace because your faith is in him. I want you to look at verse 21, and this is what Peter says. He says, Through him, through who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. The only tool necessary to be made free, to be made holy, is the tool of faith. In our last sermon, Peter called that faith precious. Like gold. Here, silver and gold are compared with the precious blood of Christ. So why does he push us to view our faith as the most precious thing? Because it is only faith in Christ that he can get exiled Christians to remain faithful in suffering. It is only through an act of belief to not just be holy, but live holy lives in obedience even while they are suffering. I'm firmly convinced that the the more precious the blood of Christ becomes to us, the more we are enabled to remain obedient 
and to live lives that are holy. The more precious that ransom becomes, the more quickly you will go to him to desire holiness and obedience. I want to go back to that parent-child illustration. Uh, I said before that you have to have a relationship with someone to want to obey them, right? But if you're listening carefully, I left a very important part out. You need more than just a relationship to be obedient. You need love. You need love. You need to know that he is not just your father, but you need to know that he loves you. That before the gift of Jesus was precious to you, you were precious to him. That he had to have you, that there was nothing that would keep him from adopting you, from calling you his child, from making you his own. Look, my son won't obey me just because I'm his father. But my son will obey me if he knows without a doubt that I love him. God loved you this much. That a ransom was made, a ransom which made you secure, which made you safe. And that from that place of holiness, he calls you to live holy lives in obedience. Not out of obligation, not out of guilt, but out of a joy, out of a response that you have been deeply loved by your Father. Do you believe that God loves you this much? That he would ransom his son for you? That you would live lives of holiness and obedience? Now as great and as awesome as this truth is, I want to push us even a little further because the text does. Verse 20. He was made foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Do you know what this means? It means that God knew before you knew that a Savior was needed. He knew Adam and Eve were going to sin. He wasn't surprised by it. And he knew too that you would disobey. And so before the foundation of the world was set, the plan of God was Jesus. The plan was your redemption and the ransom of Christ. Jesus is not plan B. He was always the plan for our lives. Because Jesus is the plan for your lives, means that you can rest in his plan. You can stop striving and rest and know that Jesus was sent for you to save you and to grow you into greater obedience. Whatever your earthly father was like, you have a perfect heavenly father. A father who knew what you needed before you even came into existence. A father who begins with grace and ends with ransom. A father who loved you first And then out of that calls you into obedience to live in holiness. Can we respond not out of obligation, but as his beloved children? Let's pray.